Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by managing editor Bridget Silverman and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 23rd, 2021. This week, we're going to take a look at interesting data from a popular FDA expedited approval pathway, labeling changes for statins, and pandemic innovations permanently changing clinical research. First up is the breakthrough therapy designation. Bridget, you noticed that the FDA has been issuing more complete response letters to designated products. Yes, Derek. Uh, thanks. Um, looking at uh, one one of the things we do at the Pink Sheet, of course, is uh, we keep track of all the complete response letters that are announced. And uh, I noticed a, a trend of um, among products that had FDA's breakthrough designation, more were getting complete response letters when they went back to FDA for approval. Um, now, this is, is is interesting because overall, uh, nine out of 10 uh, products holding breakthrough therapy designation that make it to the NDA stage um, are approved by FDA. Um, so there's, there's only about 21 complete response letters for products in the breakthrough with the breakthrough therapy designation that we've identified. But uh, what's sort of interesting is of those uh, complete response letters that we identified, uh, almost half of them occurred in 2020 or 2021 to date. Um, so, you know, that's 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 a change that that we're seeing um, now. Uh, interestingly, COVID is not to blame for this. Um, that was my first question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what, what What I found was that the, the sort of reflecting patterns in complete response letters in general, um, things were roughly split between uh, clinical concerns, you know, about uh, the clinical trials and the clinical evidence and quality concerns about manufacturing and product identity and and and, and that technical aspect. Um, and uh, uh, the the manufacturing ones are are not particularly surprising. It's it's more difficult to sort of expedite manufacturing review than it is to expedite clinical review. Um, so, uh, but what I thought was really interesting was looking at um, those clinical response letters that featured uh, concerns about clinical efficacy. Um, which uh, is where you get some really interesting um, debates. And um, notably, uh, for for the breakthrough therapy designation, you get to have early, uh, you you get more interaction with regulators during development. You get access to senior leadership during development. Um, So in theory, in a perfect world, uh, you wouldn't have these sort of debates about, you know, is your clinical trial design adequate, not like, it, you know, did you fail to meet the endpoint? So, uh, you know, we, we, but but you do see sometimes, um, at least according to the company, the FDA changes its mind. Um, and uh, in these situations, you tend to get some some real anger being expressed by um, by executives. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of standout recent example there is, um, Acadia's uh, Nuplazid for dementia-related psychosis, um, where uh, FDA's complete response letter essentially said, we, we are questioning the construct of dementia-related psychosis 
uh, were interested in subgroups and the company was saying quite literally, um, you know, the, the CEO said uh, the CRL is the first time we learned about the division's parent shift in position to demonstrate statistical significance by subtype. So, uh, you know, to some extent, I think it shows you can you can try to expedite drug development, but people are going to change their minds and, and positions are going to evolve over time. Um, and uh, you're still going to get some of these these just naughty, naughty problems. Bridget, how much uh, do you think uh, this is uh, attributable to perhaps, uh, um, you know, breakthrough just becoming more popular and sort of kind of, you know, FDA becoming more uh, um, overstretched, uh, you know, uh, COVID uh, um, uh, notwithstanding and sort of kind of, you know, things like this may sort of start to slip through the crack that it's sort of not as, not as much attention gets paid just because it becomes more routine to have a breakthrough. I mean, we've, we've written about sort of kind of how most applications now are special in some way. And does that mean that, yep. you know, nothing really is special? Is, is that, do you think that's a factor here? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the more anybody does anything, the, you know, more routine it, it, it gets. And um, FDA faces very real resource strains. Um, meeting the meetings promises of, uh, of of breakthrough. Um, but in some of these, it's uh, it really does seem to be a, you know, that just occasionally there are just uh, just problems. Um, and, uh, you know, the the, you know, FDA, like in um, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is still a, a somewhat evolving um, entity as a, a regulatory indication of, you know, how, how do you show that you're helping people? Um, uh, the company says that uh, FDA has, over time, increased the complexity of the histology endpoints. Um, you know, that's, you know, to some extent, possibly uh just a, a fact of this is what technological progress does we learn how to measure things better and we want to see different measurements it's yeah that's sort of that uh, just as uh the march of science allows for uh new products it also allows for new criteria for from the regulators so it's a, a challenge exactly uh, an opportunity so a... i bridget i and i know this this is you know this might be way out there but i mean back when breakthrough was first created and even in the, after the first couple of years when it became it was so popular there was there were questions about you know number one what is the bar to get breakthrough but then there were questions like is the bar in the right spot like is it too easy to get one and i'm wondering if maybe could you con could you consider this kind of you know maybe the agency is saying hey we're issuing too many of these we need to kind of figure out, we need to kind of push that bar up and maybe, you know, the way, one way to kind of do that is, I don't know what you call it, the hard way, so <laughs> to speak, you know, by you know, kind of telling companies, hey, this is not going to fly anymore. And if, you know, you don't believe us, here's your complete response letter type of thing. Um, I'm I'm sure that there is an element of that. Um, my suspicion is that on some of maybe the more, um, quality focused parameters um you know there, there there may be you know especially like say with gene therapy like roctavian which is another um pretty acrimonious um crl uh recently that's a uh, biomarin's um 
gene therapy for, for hemophilia, where, uh, you know, there's questions about identity, where product identity, where the phase three product is made you know, using a commercial manufacturing process. They've made some changes in the process from the phase one, two product, the clinical trial product. Um, that kind of identity issue is um, something that I feel we're seeing a little bit more as uh, gene therapies and you know very sort of sophisticated bio cell therapies are coming up, and um, you know we still really don't have a great set ways of making sure that the product given to the patient is the same as the product that was tested in the trial. That's that's really interesting, um, and it actually leads me to my next question, which was. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the manufacturing side of this. And I, I know you said that COVID didn't seem to be um, an issue, but was there any indication that they couldn't get inspections done or that like, you know, inspectional issues that had popped up, you know, over the last year, you know, delays, whatever it had been playing into this? You know, I, I feel like FDA was has has been pretty um, consistent. Um, again, maybe we accept Rectavian had some complaints. But FDA has been pretty consistent with um, COVID, where if they can't get to the inspection and um, there are no other problems with the application, the FDA just misses the goal date. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's happened, uh, you know, a handful of, of, of times with, uh, with, you know, sort of big high profile products. Um, but uh, if there is a complete response letter, it really does seem to be, to the extent that the companies disclose it, it really does seem to be that these are very specific issues. And if they couldn't make it to an inspection, there were still plenty of other issues on the table. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It, it's not like that was the only problem. Yeah. There were. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder how they get designated to begin with. You know, and I guess these are all problems that are popping up as they get into more of the clinical, you know, closer to the kind of the end, I guess. Yeah. Well, to, to, to extremely broadly generalize, um, we have found that uh, phase two data is really the sweet spot for getting a breakthrough therapy designation. It's hmm. being able to show that you have promising evidence that you could have substantial effect on a you know meaningful endpoint for a serious disease. Then you need to go into, from, from that sort of phase two midpoint stage into phase three. And um, especially because there's a real, uh, you know, focus or not focus, but, but tendency in the, the breakthrough program is a way to kind of foster new technologies or uh, development diseases that don't have treatments. Um, then you're facing often when you're designing a clinical trial, you know, you're one of the first few efficacy trials ever done mm -hmm. in this setting. Um, or we don't, you know, we don't know exactly how to define, uh, you know, dementia that is, you know, when, when, when we have symptoms. And what is the link between the underlying subtypes, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and some of that, that's, that's just science, I guess. Well, the, the, the pathway uh, feels like perhaps it's uh, reaching middle age and uh, 
use uh, um, you know, I don't know if they're, they're going to get to, you know, replaced by a uh, um, a younger actor in the spinoff or something like, uh, um, like <laughs> yeah. that. But uh, um, I, 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 Derek, my sense is that this has not received a lot of attention in terms of the um, the uh, the user fee discussions and uh, um, in terms of, sort of kind of you know maybe sort of kind of revising through kind of how uh, um, sponsors or the agency approach breakthrough, but it certainly could be something that uh, um, you know with more resources that uh, um, there's a different. Uh, um, you know, a different tack taken, uh, um, you know, in the next uh, user fee iteration, perhaps. Yeah, the, 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 the Padupa negotiations have been done for a while, and I don't remember ever seeing any mention of breakthrough at all or trying to kind of like tweak some things. I, the the last time around, they there was talk that maybe they needed a user fee for it because it was so popular and it strained resources so much. Um, but that that didn't come up again. So I don't know if you know, everyone kind of thought yeah. the FDA was at the kind of their happy medium and kind of well, figured out, got their into it, their routine or what? Yeah, I think that overall um, breakthrough has been a, a stunningly successful uh, regulatory program. Oh, yeah. No one wants to get rid of products and not only not get rid of it, but <laughs> I think you, most people look at it and say there's not really a problem. Um, you know, sometimes people are not going to be happy with FDA. Sometimes things things mm-hmm. are going to change. And if they and if you know if you hear a lot of kind of outside people talk about it, they want the FDA to behave more like this all the time. So as these you know, if you're going to have these kinds of early interactions and this kind of talk, you're eventually going to get products that just don't meet the bar or have an issue and cause a complete response layer. So I mean, it's almost like it's a the more you want this kind of um, you know this kind of uh, uh, interaction the more likely you're going to get, you know, you're going to get one that's just doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. can't get approved. Um, and there have in the life of the breakthrough program, you know, been uh, a few products that uh, got complete response letters and just um, have, have been discontinued. Um, Novartis uh, heart drug serolaxin, first one that that jumps to mind. Um, you know, sometimes things don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I think like, uh, you know, when, when you look at at the complete response letters as sort of a, a group, um, you know, what you see is very consistently both for breakthrough and non-breakthrough products, um, FDA is asking, you know, are you measuring the right thing in the right patients for a long enough time? That's very interesting. Is it's, it's a really it's a really interesting story. There's a lot of interesting data and it's something that people don't pick up on. So it, clearly something people haven't picked up on yet. So definitely check that out. It'll be in the show notes, um, you know, when the, you know, uh, on the pink sheet uh, when, when this comes out. Next up is the statin labeling change, a move that could adjust how the FDA views drug use, dur- drug use during uh, pregnancy. The agency announced on July 20th that it requested the removal of the contraindication of cholesterol-lowering statin medications in all pregnant patients. Agency officials said that because drugs may prevent serious or potentially fatal events in a small group of pregnant patients, that contraindicating them in all pregnant women is not appropriate. At the same time, the agency still advises most pregnant women to stop taking statins when they learn they are pregnant. But the bigger issue here is that the FDA, the NIH, and others have argued that pregnant women should not be excluded from clinical trials without a good reason. And they've argued that there's a cultural shift that needs to be made in the research community, in the clinical research community to boost female trial enrollment overall. So for you all, is 
do you think that this this kind of move a move like a labeling change like this can can this bring more attention to this type of issue or you know it, you know which is you know trying to get more pregnant women in the clinical trials i mean we, we saw some of this with the vac with the covid vaccines but i mean is this kind of a a stepping stone you think well it's certainly a uh, significant step uh, you know statins aren't a uh a big commercial market uh, anymore just because they're, uh, um, you know, uh, long genericized. Uh, um, and I, our, our colleague Brenda, who wrote the story, did, uh, I think, a really nice job looking back at uh, some of the original approval stories and sort of kind of how this uh, um, uh, contraindication came to be. Uh, you know, this was back when the uh, the pink sheet was actually uh, – typed out with a typewriter on uh, um, pink pages. And so uh, a lot of our, our fishbacks are on all caps. So uh, if you look at that story, that's why there's a lot of all caps uh, um, references to uh, headlines and stuff like that. And so, uh, um, you know, I think, Derek, as you said, you know, I think the the COVID vaccine uh, situation is probably sort of the more um, significant one just because it's sort of kind of it's uh, um uh, you know, probably sort of more more broadly uh, uh, used, uh, um, at least uh, that's everyone wants the uptake uh, to be, and uh, um, sort of kind of more more front of mind. And uh, you know, that that that, that was a situation in which the um, you know pregnant and uh, um, uh, breastfeeding women were excluded from the trials, but uh, um, health authorities uh, went ahead and said that uh, they should uh, get the vaccine anyway, even though there was a uh, there wasn't any data. Um, on the uh, on the question of whether uh, um, it would work and whether it was uh, it was safe and uh, um, you know so far it seems like it's uh, worked out surveillance has not sort of seen any uh, um, any problems uh, from that so uh, um, I mean there was a little data sort of uh, you know sort of uh, um, from the trials but they were uh, um, from pregnancies that happened during the uh, um, during the study but uh, um, it looks very interesting to see uh, um, see this is a a trend towards uh, more inclusivity or it's just sort of just a uh, um, a few uh, um, high-profile incidences. I think it is sort of kind of a, uh, a a broader move. The the day before uh, FDA uh, made uh, the stat announcement, they put out a uh, a statement about how they wanted to uh, uh, you know harmonize the inclusion of uh, pregnant and breastfeeding uh, women in clinical uh, research. So uh, they're hoping to get uh, regulatory authorities across the world to uh, to open up. Uh, trials more and uh, that would obviously lead to sort of more data and more uh, um more use of medicines in this population um i feel that uh in in sort of broader uh, approval trends um that uh fda's uh at least at cedars uh paternal and the <laughs> pediatric and maternal health office which sort of consults on um has uh been been very active um and uh you know, you you really do see um, over the last uh, you know I'm talking a really long period of time here, probably more than five years. Um, you know, more detail and labeling on um, pregnancy and lactation. Um, you know that this is 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 something that uh, that that at FDA there's there's a commitment to. Yeah, that's interesting, and and you know we, we we've. We've heard all the, you know, the 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 complaints about this, and, and and certainly, you know, there's been a lot of ideas thrown out there on, you know, how 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 can the FDA do that? You know, can they can they require, you know, require enrollment of of certain special populations like pregnant and lactating women? Um, you know, can they shame companies that don't do it? I mean, they kind of do that now with the um, the drug trial snapshots. Um, you know, you know, they they've thrown out. A, giving them additional exclusivity, you know, upon approval and that, and that, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, 
this is an interesting problem and you, you just gotta you gotta wonder you know you know what what's the best way to kind of get this done um yeah no it's 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 very tricky <laughs> well it's really something that sponsors should be uh thinking about as they uh um ramp up their uh their trials because it's uh um the uh fda is eager to see this data and uh um it behoove uh, behoove them to try and uh, try and include it so uh yeah. um um, well, I will say that, that uh, come to think of it, um, you really uh, see very routinely um, now, uh, you know, pregnancy exposure registries as a post-marketing requirement. And that's been going on long enough that some of those might be starting to produce data. You know, for instance, in the statins where, you know, it's not sometimes until, you know, half of humanity has taken it that, uh, you know, we finally have enough enough information to say. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. It's you know, one of those things that, you know, you know, as for those of us who've read the approval letters and read labels, you know, and, and things and you just kind of glaze over the pregnancy portion because there's usually very little, if anything, written in that section. <laughs> You know, and the, you know, the the fact that they're going to actually start seeing some meat in those in those sections, I'm sure, is is uh, you know particularly heartening to a, to a lot of people. Our final topic today builds on the clinical trial reform theme. A paper in JAMA in JAMA from academic and regulatory leaders uh, in cancer drug development called for more community and home-based access to investigational products. This is part of a push by regulators to extend COVID clinical trial flexibility beyond the pandemic, as well as create new clinical trial standards. So they want things like electronic remote consenting made permanent and to continue allowing the use of any lab or imaging center that meets spe meets specifications once the pandemic is over, as opposed to going only going to places that are approved uh, for the trial. Um, and I know you all have heard this You've heard these arguments for reform. We've all heard them. We heard them before the pandemic. We've heard them during the pandemic. We've heard now we're hearing them now that we're trying to come out of the pandemic. What, you know, what do you think are, you know, are, are there are there items here that could be easily done and that have a chance of sticking? Or do you think that this is kind of a, you know, are, are, we, are we in danger of kind of snapping back to the way things were done before and kind of being that kind of regimented, you know, kind of um, uh, routine that, you know, with, with clinical trials? You know, I think none of this is technically hard. I think it's a question of uh, companies, you know, redesigning their workflows and uh, changing their attitudes to, uh, um, to, do it, uh, to do it differently. Uh, um, you know, the real challenge in my mind is, you know, do these trials that are done this way you know, produce the same quality of data. Sort of FDA, mm -hmm. you know, is still sort of kind of thinking about, uh, um, you know, uh, is that true? They're sort of they ask for these uh, assessments of sort of kind of uh, you know the data sets that sort of kind of uh, were were different once the uh, the trials were changed uh, um, midway through because of COVID. And uh, um, honestly, it may be a little early to kind of declare that sort of the trials can be run this way. I think. Uh, Everyone's uh, um, hopeful and enthusiastic that it can sort of kind of allow trials to be, you know, cheaper, faster, more inclusive. Um, but uh, um, you know, if the data is uh, is less reliable, then uh, um, that's not a good thing. Obviously, as we're kind of FDA looking at the data had decided that already, they uh, they wouldn't be going in this uh, um, in this direction. But I think that's still uh, um, still an open question, at least in my mind, until we sort of get a few uh, um, products that sort of kind of you know 
uh, you know, we're studied this way, approved. We want, we're not going to really know if we're kind of uh, do these trials are going to work as uh, as well from a uh, data generation standpoint as the uh, the tried and true, uh, you know, bulkier uh, um, academic medical center uh, approach. Yeah, certainly, like something like doing infusions at home as opposed to having the the patient travel to you know a hospital or or wherever an academic medical center you know certainly is more convenient and would drive participation. But you know logistically, you you ask questions like you know can you can you get that done in a reasonable in a reasonable manner? You know uh, you know some of those things would probably still have to be worked out. You know once we you know like you said once we get through. We get through this and we see the trials that are completed. Uh, I'm I'm inclined to vote that you know increasing the use of like network sites rather than only those big academic medical centers to do, you know, to, to do as to do trials might be something that could stick even that we know could probably stick even now. I mean, it's it's an easy way to increase participation because you you're going you're having. Um, the trial available in kind of these more neighborhood type of settings as opposed to, you know, driving to downtown Washington, D.C. or New York City or, you know, Chicago or somewhere like that to get to one of these big academic medical centers where they're where the trial investigators are, are based. Uh, you know, and I've heard and, I've, and I'm not the only one to come up with this reason. I mean, the, this has been um this is an idea that's been thrown out there for a while because they feel like the technology is there now to be able to kind of transmit data in a secure way from these, you know, these network, these local sites to, you know, to the academic medical centers without too much trouble. Uh, One, one, I mean, one, one hopes that, that this is true when trials become easier. Um, There's uh, always, you know, um, like any debate over net debate discussion of electronic health records, you know, you start realizing, you know, how incredibly complicated data is mm-hmm. um, and uh, how incredibly sclerotic the process for change is. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if the sort of uh, cultural power of the academic medical centers is, is kind of broken and there's a, a, a more lose network yeah networks uh gain gain power yeah you wonder if they're willing to even to like give up you know kind of being the center of attention if so to speak mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah you know cer- certainly you know you know all the, these big academic medical centers in new york and washington chicago la all these places are you know that that's a you know a business model is probably not the right yep. word but it is a big part of their business model so mm-hmm. yeah, do you do you want to send that service away to to other you know smaller hospitals? I'm sure the smaller hospitals would be excited about it because but you know uh, uh, certainly lot- if you look at any of the patient patient voice process, um, you know, travel is is travel and, and inconvenience to get oh, yeah. treatment is always a, mm-hmm. a patient concern. Especially yeah, especially with some of these rare disease trials where you've got people I mean, you hear stories where like, you know, I, you know, the the parents fly the, you know, their their son or daughter, you know, three or four times a year from, you know, I think about, I heard one story was like Alabama or something to, I think it was New York. And it, it was just, they, they would go, they'd have to stay in a hotel for a day or two, do all the testing and get the infusion, whatever it was, and then come back. And then, you know, and it, it just over and over and you got to take kids out of school and you got to take vacation and you have to, you know, you're paying for all these flights and all this other stuff. 
it's just, yeah, I, I can't imagine, you know, if you could say, instead of doing that, drive 30 minutes down the street, it, you know, yep. I mean, it would be, I, I can't, I can't imagine how people would be excited about that. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. If you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Bridget Silverman and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.